You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, sponsored by Starburst Magazine. And for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Scott Burdett to do a uh, voiceover for the start of this one. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hello, I'm Mark. <laughs> <laughs> full of biscuit. Well done. Oh, I'm taking a bite of biscuit just Perfect as you're about time. to say hello. I nearly spoke into my mug. <laughs> and who are you? Nearly, I'm Simon and I nearly spoke into my mug rather than the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, well. At least we picked it oh, up a bit. Farmer. <laughs> going so well no it wasn't at what point was that ever going well uh this episode of the uh i nearly said this episode of the phonic screwdriver <laughs> this episode of the phonic screwdriver radio show brought to you by starburst magazine is going to be all about horror in doctor who yeah but more specifically because doctor who's been scary right from the start and is famously the television show that puts the kiddies behind the sofa with its barrage of monsters and violent deaths and all sorts of creepy scary bits so more specifically than just horror because otherwise we'll just end up talking about absolutely everything we're going to be talking about the way that literary and cinematic horror tropes have influenced specific stories in the doctor who canon and as such, we're going to pretty much ignore the 1960s because as mm. scary as Doctor Who was in the 1960s really wasn't influenced at all by straight horror. No, I mean, I was looking on old Wikipedia the other day and it said that a rescue, it kind of it lumped it in with a gothic um, kind of um, label. And I, I couldn't work out quite why, but you worked it out that it could be more of a thriller as opposed to... Well, uh, what I said horror. was... In the rescue, you get a trope that is would be used in horror, but it's used. It is a psychological trope, but it's used more in the way it would have been in a thriller. It's the dual personality aspect that can be used in horror, and has been. And you know, Vincent Price films about dual personalities that are very much horror films. But then again, Psycho also is a dual personality yeah. film. And that, I wouldn't call Psycho a horror film. I'd call it a thriller. It is called a horror film by a lot of people, isn't it? But I wouldn't, though. I've always called it a thriller. Because yeah. there's knives and showers. <clears throat> yeah, as opposed to, I don't know. I think what we're really looking at is probably, and this is a very good point to start on, because this is where I was going to start, the supernatural. All right. Yeah, because... You, the kind of thing we're talking about, because obviously, obviously, we're going to be looking at Hinchcliffe and Holmes, where you've got a lot of stories that are influenced by stuff from the movies about you know, The Walking Dead and stuff, mummies, mm. things like that. 
So obviously we're going to be coming to that. But where I'd like to start, when I got thinking about what we talk about in this episode, one of the things that struck me was, and David Adams brought this up on Facebook, the first specific instance of Doctor Who actually aping a horror scenario was in The Demons. Mm. And to my mind, the last instance of it in production order rather than in story order, because you've got Curse of Fenric right after it, is ghost light. That's where the classic series leaves off. Mm. And ghost light and the demons both struck me as reminding me of the same thing, but coming from two completely different angles. And I was taken by the notion that somewhere in between the first introduction of horror, specifically into Doctor Who, and the last time it was used, an evolution has occurred that allows the writers of those two stories to come at a similar sort of situation from a completely different angle. In The Demons, you've got, and I I want to get into this as well, but I will do afterwards after I've brought up the example. In The Demons, you've got Barry Letts writing a Doctor Who story that is about magic being explained away by science. And in Ghostlight, you've got another horror trope, which is the haunted house scenario, in which you've got a writer who's writing about science appearing as magic so you've got completely the opposite ends of the spectrum there but in a very similar way in a way Mm. now barry letts was the first producer writer producer of doctor who to actually take the program by the scruff of its neck and use it use it as a vehicle for his own obsessions and interests Mm. And Barry Letts' big thing, you know, his first season in charge where he actually influenced the stories was season eight. The Demons was the first sort of ostensible season finale that had ever been in Doctor Who, really, apart from probably Evil of the Daleks. And as as such, The Demons is Barry Letts' first opportunity to take those interests and obsessions and actually put them demonstrably on screen. And his big thing at the time was magic is only science that you don't yet know. Coming to that point, actually, um, that's the bit that I wished wasn't in that particular series. I wish so too. Because you want the magic to be magic, but of course it can't be because it's Doctor Who. So you've got John Pertwee, Mark's favourite, standing there being a bit kind of snobby about the magic and showing off to Joe with his remote control car going, well, is that magic? No, it's not. It's a remote control <laughs> car. At what point did he turn into Paul Daniels? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a sore throat. <laughs> the thing about it is, though, Barry Letts is here having his cake and eating it. He's saying, you know, you can have magic, but it's not really magic. Mm. There's going to be a scientific explanation for it. And he puts the devil on screen and says, oh, but it's okay. He's just an alien. Yeah, I, know. I think it's brilliant because there's a bit of Quetimas thrown in there as well, isn't there? You get that yeah. kind of idea of ancient ones and a bit of Cthulhu as well, all of that stuff that he's taken. But, you know, I, I do like the way that he's kind of um, involved real culty kind of sacrificial wicker man ideas. Pa- pa- pagan stuff, but devil right out, yeah, with Dennis Wheatley. All of that and then thrown in the science bit because it has to be Doctor Who and there's a bit of science going on. That... 
it, it does work. I think it's beautifully balanced, and that's why I've always enjoyed that one. But, you but know I what? really enjoy that first ten minutes more than anything else. Well, Devil's Hump, you know, <clears throat> the witch being thrown. Yeah, but in the, the new series, the when you thought they'd be even less likely to do the magic without the science, they do. And in the Satan Pit, mm. which is a perfect example, because in the Satan Pit, they decide to put the devil back on screen again, and they don't explain him away. No, but the interesting thing there is you get that fantastic devil, um, you know, the beast. It's beautifully rendered. I, I really liked it. It was fantastic. When it came up, I thought, wow, this is the kind of monster we want Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. But the actual, the most scary part of that is a bloke with a load of pen over his face freaking out. Mm. You know, yeah, he yeah. was the best thing about Yeah, He's the, the most scary thing But the point is, human. don't explain the devil away in the Satan pit. No. They just say he's from somewhere else that we can't explain. And they don't explain. And that's the brilliant thing about it. And, you know, to my mind, that's Barry Letts' problem. He brings everything down to the mundane. You could put the magic on screen, but in the end, you've got to have a mundane explanation. He wants to tie it up in a neat bow. Yeah. Mm. Is that a reference to the Morris men? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Very good. Yeah. Oh, dear. No, I like... Didn't you like the Morris men? You're not a demons fan? I quite like the demons, but yeah, Morris dancing isn't... My favourite, I have to say. So oh, I, mean, you... I did find that quite scary when I first saw it. And the book, in the book, the Morris oh. Men in the book are very spooky. I'll have to rewatch it. <laughs> You're not spooked out, or you are spooked out by that kind of thing. Does that interest no, you? No, but too? I do love that story purely because of the amount of character it's got. And it, you know, it's a one off, isn't it? And in the history of Doctor Who, it is a one off. And uh, yeah, having those uh, those elements in there of the the quaint English village and you almost feel like it's it's a and you've got Bok how brilliant is that I, I love the way that Unit interacts with it all as well that they sort of go in there and basically go out shooting things <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I almost forget Unit's in it because they kind of like they can't get through the heat barrier that's right they, that's right did they ever I can't remember did they give a mundane scientific explanation for you know the devil's familiar Bok being brought to life, a statue being brought to life. No, because, don't you know, think they did actually. I, I don't remember them doing that. No. So mm, there you go. There's Barry Letts trying to give you a really dull explanation for everything. And in that story, you've got two things. First of all, you've got Bok, who you never really explained away <laughs> properly. <laughs> and then at the end of the maybe story, it's a weeping angel. Maybe that's what they were. Well. Mm. <laughs> That is an interesting way to reckon it. I think he was brought brought to life by the same science that scarecrows came to life. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) But the other thing that gets me in that story is you go through all five of these episodes with, um, you know, Barry Letts throwing all these tropes from Dennis Wheatley into the mix and sort of giving them all really dull scientific explanations. (laughs) And at the end of the story, it's resolved by... Joe Grant being prepared to sacrifice herself and the devil saying, oh, I can't cope with that. Self-sacrifice. Yeah, I know. That's a terrible ending. We, we, it's, yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous and it's a terrible ending. But uh, the thing that always grabs me about that is to spin a story on having a scientific explanation for everything and then resolving to end it, it with that, on yeah. an emotional note takes away from your scientific explanations and says says to me, what was the point of putting them in there in the first place mm-hmm, if yeah. you're going to use a little bit of magic to resolve it? Which is why a lot of people were confused by that ending about why it was there 
and it didn't make sense and it couldn't be explained because everything else has been explained. You're right. You know, you oh, get yeah. to that ending, it's like that's a little bit profound. I think if Barry Letts hadn't explained the demons away by saying that aliens were keeping their eye on our progress and weren't very happy about it, and you know, there's this heat barrier and it's been thrown up by this spaceship that grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks. If he just said it was the devil, and it obviously wasn't really the devil, but mm. we can't explain mm. what it is, that ending would have made so much more sense. When I was reading stuff about how to write a, a story, and I'm not that any good at writing a story, but it's it, one of the main things, I mean, you might correct me here because you're a writer, is have an ending first. So think about your yeah. ending first, and then you just head towards that ending and everything else can kind of fall in place. It plainly feels like he never had an ending, and he he just drove on the atmosphere and, and the fun of this, and then went, I oh, oh, oh how am I going to end this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I know, I'll have Joe again. <laughs> Take me. Maybe he did think that. It's just very well, very badly <laughs> realised. Maybe. Maybe he did think, maybe he did think that was how it was going to end. Yeah. Um, on the subject, though, of Barry Letts and horror tropes, uh, the one other instance during the John Pertwee years that struck me, and that precedes the demons and to my mind is slightly a sort of trial run for doing something like the demons is terror of the autons specifically the devil doll but Mm. less specifically animated mannequins Mm. the Mm. use of all the plastic coming to life that's the kind of thing that you get yeah yeah exactly it's the kind of thing that you'd get in one of these and the other thing i was thinking of oh i can't remember the name of it but one of these films where the devil uses instruments to do his work. You know, we'll bring... The omen, dog. that sort of thing? Mm. That mm. we mean? No, I'm going back further, 50s. Oh, OK. Don't know. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, how's The it? Devil Doll. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's there lots of Devil Doll films yeah. in the 50s and probably the 60s as well, actually, mm. I think. Uh, but that's what it reminded voodoo me of. Voodoo as well, mm. that's that kind of voodoo. Terror of the Autons. It reminded me much more of that than Spearhead from Space Dick. What's that creepy one with Tony Hopkins and the um, ventriloquist dummy? Uh, mannequin, is it called, or is it something along those lines? Something? Yeah, yeah. That was Kim Cattrall. Yeah, no, it wasn't that then, was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was something to do with a clown or a doll or something. Mm. Remember, but it was, th- yeah, those sort of things are creepy. Very creepy. Yeah. Mm. And you're right, it's the kind of happy face. It's as buying well, into the, that sort of. Yeah, the happy faces and the Autons as well, and, yeah. and the circus and mm. clowns and mm. you know all of that is. Quite... Oh yeah, but I'm talking about more specifically about <clears throat> the, devil the, the devil using doll. inanimate objects as weapons. Oh yeah, mm. like for instance, also the chair and the telephone cord and all yeah. things like that. Yeah. And, mm. and so, so far more than Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons is moving into the territory of doing an adult horror film for kids. Yeah, yeah. Although you know it's it doesn't quite get there. It's not it's not doing it as deliberately as the demons did. But it's certainly in that area. I mean, the, the, the demons was deliberately a, a wicker man for kids, really, wasn't it? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> but then after that, I think Barry Letts has kind of got that out of his system and then his concerns move into other areas. Mm. And so for the rest of uh, the John Pertwee tenure, you don't really have another instance of specifically horror tropes being used. You've got things like the giant maggots and the giant spiders. But these are things that are scary yeah. anyway, and it's mm. just a fairly natural Doctor Who thing to do, to do giant versions of something that you already find scary. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a B-movie, isn't it? Giant, yeah. giant animals. Them. King Kong. Them. Yeah, quite. It, you kind of get the impression that John Pertwee's Doctor would just scoff at anything that was the least bit magic-y anyway, wouldn't you? So mm. He does. I don't think it would work. <laughs> well, yeah, he does, and it just wouldn't work. 
Well, this is uh, more so than John Pertwee. This is Barry Letts. This is the man who wants to have an explanation for everything, isn't it? Mm. You know, not not to deride him, but that's kind of how his Doctor Who worked. We were saying in the regeneration episode the other week, I said Barry Letts explained everything very quickly and, to my mind, almost made Doctor Who dull, took the mystery out of it. Mm. And, you know, that's what I think he's doing with all this science versus magic and, you know, then he gets into the politics and the environmental issues and stuff like that. And it's almost like anything that might be not mysterious, but anything that might have mystique around it, you get, Barry Letts gets his hand on it and all of a sudden the mystique's kind of gone. That's mm. a little bit like, we'll probably get to it in a minute, the state of decay. I think that because it was commissioned in the late 70s, Robert Holmes, wasn't it, or something? And it had, it was Robert Holmes commissioned it. Yeah, it would have tied in with the kind of gothicy stuff that they were getting on and doing, but they never actually made it. And then, of course, State of Decay came in with Christopher H. Bibmead's run, and, and then he, he kind of took all the atmosphere out of it and put sciencey wancy stuff in it. Yeah, but then the director threw the, a lot of the sciencey wancy stuff out and went back to the original <laughs> script. Quite like State of Decay. It's not. It's not bad. Considering it's vampires, and I hate vampires. I didn't find it very vampire-y, though. I know, it's weird. No. I As a kid, uh, looking at it now, knowing what I know about horror films, yeah, mm. it's a bit more... There's, there's, tons of fair, there's that there. one scene with um, Matthew Waterhouse and Lala Ward mm. where they've got her asleep on the bed and Matthew Waterhouse is being cajoled into wanting to become vampiric <clears> and all <throat> this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's about the only point in the story mm. where you get standard old-fashioned style vampire scene. Mm, and apart yeah. from that, it's just vampires in name only, really, isn't it? Well, it's, it does have that kind of... Uh, I mean, <laughs> you've got the villagers, haven't you, all being terrified by the um, aristocratic, vampiric leaders or whatever it is, you know, the people that up in the big castle. And that's like loads of Hammer horror films. Yeah, Twins of Evils very much, very yeah. much in that Vampire vein. Circus, same deal. Talking of Lala Ward. She was in that as well. Yeah, very good. She was too. <laughs> yeah, that was a creepy off thing. That was a weird film. But State of Decay. I mean, I don't think the script that Terence Dix wrote in the nineteen seventies. I don't think he ever got as far as the Didn't script. Was it just like an outline? Was it? Yeah, I think it got cancelled before he even got that far. <laughs> uh, but talking of vampires, Curse of Fenric. Because mm. I wanted to talk mm. about this season since we've done. The demons and my analogy at the start was between the demons and ghost light. I thought maybe we'll start at the outsides and work our way in. Mm. What about what about ghost light? We didn't really cover too much there, did we? Well, basically, it takes some of the tropes of a ghost story, mm. and most specifically, I think in the bit where you've got the housekeeper and the maids all coming to life, and mm. but it's so it's kind of got a little bit of the outward trappings of what you'd expect to be a ghost story. But by this stage in the series' development, Mm. you couldn't do a ghost story anymore. So while it might have a few of the trappings, it goes off and does something else entirely with it. It does. It really does. But you introduce the story. At the start of the first episode, you're introducing the story as Ace is scared of this house, this haunted house. Yeah. So let's go in and find out what's going on in the haunted house. And as soon as you get in there, you get into the sciencey stuff. So you, but it starts off. But you've got the, the like uh, the Neanderthal butler as, yeah, yeah, as a Igor type character, haven't you? And uh, and a lot of the stuff that's going on in there, not just with that, but you know, with the um, 
is it the vicar who starts sprouting the hairs to yeah. Yeah. evolution? Yeah. yeah. That was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, funny but also spooky. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was mm. weird. I mean, I'd like to know what a person of, I don't know, nine, ten years old thought about Ghostlight. Because you watched it recently, Mark, and thought it was quite good, didn't you? Yeah, I love it. Uh, I, I watched it only about three nights ago, mm. actually, in preparation for this, in fact. And I was, I'm not going to go on about the, you know, uh, the, the the narrative or the script. Cause yeah, I mean, it's it was, been... Oh, God, it was so frustrating. Mm. I really wanted it to be four episodes long. Mm. I really wanted it to take its time. I like the way that kind of really moves really quickly. But by doing what it did with the editing and the the way it chopped the narrative up and made all these complex characters have very big arcs and you know nice ideas tons of ideas it just there was no atmosphere in it whatsoever apart from when she sat there and played a song about monkey nuts and i suddenly thought oh this is a bit weird <laughs> Ooh, i like that bit because they stopped for about 30 seconds to a minute and actually you know you had a character singing something quite mental and strange monkey nuts and i thought that's 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 quite good but the rest of the way didn't have any no that's but what I mean is the atmosphere. There was no atmosphere in it. It was trying I to be... Quite a I, I think it's packed atmosphere. Did yeah. you, what part did you find spooky? Well, there's the talk about the soup, the what happens to the vicar and the policeman. Yeah, but these are ideas. The actual dealing of it on the screen wasn't spooky. The cream of Scotland Yard. Yeah, I mean, well, but wasn't it? That's more an Eric Sayward thing. Do you not think? Maybe. <laughs> no, I it's don't think claustrophobic as well, isn't it? Once you're, in, once you're inside the house, it's pretty. All, it's all enclosed, isn't it? I mean, the sets are the best thing about that. Mm. I love the sets on that, and mm. the a great cast as well. Great cast, yeah. Oh, well, it's well amazing, acted. It's well acted. Yeah. yeah, just a real mess. But I did, But it's like I said. <laughs> yeah, but it's like I said. It comes in, like it comes on, like it's going to be a haunted house story. Mm. But the haunted house thing is pretty much thrown out after about 10 minutes. And then it probably, after that point, because it's thrown out its reason for existing, it's almost like, what do you find then to replace it? I think they could have strung that aspect of it along a lot further, maybe. But I think you get to meet all the other characters probably too soon. You need to mm. be introduced to them more slowly. Yeah. I think I wrote down something along the lines of if if you had to take Doctor Who out of it completely and make this a, a whole six episode serial or a two hour to, film or two mm. hour film it'd actually be really good. It's yeah, great it could ideas, be, yeah. but I think with Doctor Who being in it, it just didn't. But you know what struck me about that is <clears throat> after a good ten years of being under John Nathan Turner and with. Uh, not so much maybe with Christopher Bidmead, but after Christopher Bidmead was gone, you had a good period where Doctor Who was trying to be straight science fiction, a very hard science fiction as well, and quite a, trying to be a grown-up science fiction. And Andrew Cartmel comes along, and for two years he's doing this sort of graphic novel thing that he's talked about in interviews. But then in his third year, and the third year is the one that most people prefer, You've got Ghostlight and Curse of Fenric that are both very ostensibly based on, very ostentatiously, sorry, based on horror tropes. Mm. And you've even got, in amongst that, and it's a complete fantasy, which is the Knights of the Round Table one, but at the end of the, at the, end of the Knights of the Round Table one, 
you've got the witch character conjuring up the devil again. Mm. So even Battlefield ends up with a final mm. episode mm. that's very much, again, Dennis Wheatley almost. Yeah. So you've got all of a sudden, more than a decade after the Hinchcliffe Holmes years, oh, a decade more after that, you've suddenly got a season that's almost gone back to that. Yeah, it has got all those things in. But funny enough, I when you when you look at the demons, all right, on one hand, and then you look at Ghost Light and Curse of Fenric, you know, as an adult going back and looking at both of those properly, which one is the more spookier if you turn the lights off? It's going to be the demons every time. And it's just the way it's filmed, the way it was treated, the fact it was on film as well, I think. I just, think just the way memory. visually and the, the sound effects and just, the, you know, they knew that they were trying to make a little horror film for Doctor Who. Whereas for some reason, Curse of Fenric and Ghostlight just do not have... No, I think Curse I'm not a huge fan of Curse of Fenric, but I think it does. I think it's got a lot of atmosphere and what it does have, which Ghostlight mm. doesn't have and which the Demons doesn't have, Ghostlight and the Demons both do the science thing, right? Mm. But the Curse of Fenric, about faith. It, it, Curse yeah. of Fenric is the one story, and you've got a really Gubbins last episode, but before the Gubbins last episode, you've actually got a story where they're allowing it to be about magic. About faith, yeah. Believing. Yeah, and it's, to my mind... I'm not the biggest fan, I just said, of Curse of Fenric because I think it's got a lot of other problems. But to my mind, I really like that. And uh, it was explained that it's not the faith in any religious iconography. No, it's just it's, having It's just faith. having faith in something which yeah. builds up this psychic energy. So it was a little bit Barry Letsy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't do it entirely. But you know what I'm saying? There's a difference between it's about psychic energy then it's about, you know, a man in a spaceship. Yeah. Which is what the demons boil down to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sort of, I'm not ragging on demons because I don't like it. Because I do. I love the demons. Yeah. But, you know, <clears throat> there are aspects of the demons that I wish weren't there. Almost, yeah. It's a good argument for male waxing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And that's Simon's contribution. <laughs> well done. We're going to start with Simon's top lip. Yeah. Uh, yeah we're in that's... the middle of November. Yeah. And something's happening with Simon's top know, lip, it's but it's not horrible. a moustache. I, quite, I think it looks distinguished, mate. I think he's auditioning for a role in a World War II fighter pilot. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. See? Chuck's way. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And... <laughs> well there's the difference between horrific and horror so um post oh, i can't stop playing with it sorry post hinchcliffe and holmes and before season 26 any other stories that take horror tropes and uh anybody think of anything i mean because the last one i can really think of off the top of my head is images of fendal yeah. Uh, no, no, actually, Stones of Blood. Oh, yeah, yeah, Stones of Blood. I completely forgot about that one. Yeah, almost. That's because almost. the last two episodes completely ruined the illusion. Yeah, it did, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that, that was... That was that was very Dennis Wheatley as well. That was, and it had some yeah. good f- moments in it which were quite fearful. As a kid, I mean, you know, a, a walking stone crashing through the front room was like, <laughs> like, oh, my God. But as an adult, you just sit there and go, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, talking of... Um, the Demons and Stones of Blood. Uh, I'd make a case for The Awakening. 
What has been a has been it's about a devil who lives in the wall of a church and who influences the people of the village into killing one another. Yeah, it's haunting, basically, isn't it? That's yeah. what it's all about. Possession mm. and haunting. Possession, yeah. Possession What's... by a devil. Mm. So I definitely make a case for the awakening. There's, there are some but it, yeah. But again, I don't know, is it when you put horror and atmosphere and gothic and all this sort of it stuff, it doesn't have the atmosphere. It doesn't scare you at all, does it? it doesn't it? Didn't no, scare me it's not kid. done in a scary way, but it's definitely taking the trope it and is. using that trope mm. uh, of you know devilric possession, however you want to however you want to describe it. Black orchid as well. You had the Phantom of the Opera <clears> thing <throat> coming in again because obviously we had that in Talons of Wing Cheyenne. And in Caves of Androzani. Yes, mm, yeah, lots of that. I couldn't lots make a of case. masks and I couldn't make a case for Androzani <laughs> or uh, Black Orchid. No, Black Orchid's a whodunit, isn't it? It is, but you have got that horror hidden away, haven't you, that everybody gets scared of, mm. hidden in a cupboard somewhere. I guess it's a bit the ghoul. Gosh, horror films, don't you? Go and look that one up. <laughs> that's hey, that's got... a bit twisted, that film. <laughs> It's got Ian McCulloch in it. Not Ian I love McCulloch Echo and the Bunny Men. Echo and the Bunny Men. Ian McCulloch from Survivors. That'd be brilliant. Oh no. <laughs> That's the man with the and biggest in the deep. In... Yeah, don't tell me about that. Ian McCulloch from Survivors. He's in The Ghoul. Right. Great for you. the deep. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess we're getting into Hinchcliffe and Holmes territory then. It's because kind of closing, actually, isn't it? But what astonishes me is, apart from that three-year period, three-and-a-half-year period, because Robert Holmes stuck around for another half a year after, well, no, actually, two-and-a-half-year period because they didn't really introduce it in season 12 at all because they were all Barry Lett stories. Apart from that period, it's amazing how little, given that Doctor Who has this reputation for being, you know, Scaring the Little Ones series. Amazing how little of an influence horror has had on the programme in, in these specific ways. Mm. But I mean, I, I would probably say that the obviously the Hinchcliffe era is my favourite era of the classic series. I just, I just think it is. And why is that? It's because it touches on all the things that I like, which is supernatural and horror. Um, but, but what I'm it does... interested... Yeah. No, go on. I was just interested to see what Mark and Simon think, because Simon, I know, isn't a massive horror fan, but it's always cited that those seasons are really quite strong and, and brilliant. Is it just the writing, or is it... I mean, is it a, a couple of seasons sure. that you hold in high esteem? And if so, why? But it's not horror in the same way as, say, something like The Thing or Alien. It's not that same kind of psychological. It's more almost like a. Uh, it's got a texture to it. Like the old Hammer Horror. Hammer Horror I absolutely love because it's kind of comic book and it's kind of... Fantasy uh, horror. Yeah, yeah. So I don't It sounds a visceral. No. There no. are uh, occasions during Let's and uh, during Hinchcliffe and Holmes where it gets pretty visceral, like in the Ark in Space. Mm. Mm. You know, with the... Because, Body horror. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm. What it is in the Ark in Space is that you've taken the idea of possession and made it physical. Mm. made it you know corporeal almost you've well, made it real and something that you can see and feel and touch and actually physically suffer from it's like um possession as a physical bodily illness and well, that's, that's like the seeds of doom as well 
Yeah, yeah. No, and, I was giving the arc in space because yeah, that's yeah. the first example. Yeah, yeah. And there's room for the Cybermen to be treated in that way as well. Yeah, I think, I think so. <clears throat> and they don't. And I think they should. Ironically enough. No, absolutely. I agree with you. It's very Frank- Frankenstein, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it should be. That's the point. It mm. should be, but mm. it never really has been. I don't think ever has been because I don't think there's a single story in the whole of Doctor Who that's actually gone anywhere near touching on what you can do with the Cybermen in terms of, you know, physical body horror possession. Apart from, um, of course, spare parts. I'm holding out a lot of hope for Neil Gaiman because he is a genius, in my opinion, and he's writing the Cyberman story for mm. season well, seven. Maybe he'll treat it mm. that kind of Depends what way, he does with knows. it because Neil Gaiman's a fantasy writer, first and foremost. I don't think. And he's, he's also very quirky. He mm. does his stuff, so might be taking a completely different I think it will. angle. Maybe. I look at Neil Gaiman and I don't see, I don't know his entire oeuvre, but I've seen and whatever quite a lot of it and I've not seen anything in there that leads me to believe that he'll go anywhere near touching on a Cyberman body horror story. No. We'll see. But you know, we shall see. Mm. Bill Mark's got this grin on his face that leads me to <laughs> believe that he's actually been in the set and seen what's going on. No, no, I've just got faith in Neil Gaiman. I've got faith. Hey. Going back to the demons again. George Michael. God almighty. Do you know what um, strikes me about... <laughs> I didn't even hear what you said. I love the way Jaya just, just... Yeah, straight face. Gets on with it. Yeah, because what's funny for us might not be funny for the people listening. No, so that's no. true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do apologise, listeners, what for any of Simon's funniness. <laughs> Oh, God, I didn't even hear that because you're talking over me. I was talking first. Off you go. Uh, what strikes me about Hinchcliffe and Holmes is that, yes, they made the most popular, the most entertaining, the most well-remembered stories in the entire Doctor Who canon. But what they did was they threw out all the meaningful stuff and just went back to having fun. Mm. And I suspect that this was no I, that's not true Doctor Who started off being meaningful and then when Patrick Troughton came along and you had people like Peter Bryant producing it it was just fun mm. and then Barry Letts came in and it went back to being meaningful and then Hinchcliffe and Holmes went off and had fun with it but they were getting good viewing figures and they had the experience of the previous 12 years or whatever it was to play with at um, two things. One, they didn't fall into any of the traps that the early series did because you know what you say, you learn from your mistakes. So all those early stories that were perhaps less than successful because, you know, as we know, Patrick Trout and Tenure of Doctor Who shed viewers like, you know, like you can't say. Uh, but the other thing was they were relaxed enough to just say, we will take our influences and wear them on our sleeves. Mm. It's quite brave, actually, because if you think about Pat Troughton's tenure, he just jumped in the TARDIS and he was hopping about, having adventures, lots and lots of monsters stuffed in in every one of those stories. Then you had uh, Pertwee almost having a large arc, really, with the unit family and always being tied to these same people. And then you get the Bohemian back, you get the Wanderer. And he just cuts free. And he cuts free, and then you get all these individual stories again. 
but this time in the hands of people who love Hammer Horror. <laughs> yeah. And it just works. But not just that. And you've got Tom Baker, of course. almost like um, across the first 12 years, Doctor Who had been taking influences from all over the place. Uh, specifically, during the early years, the sort of educational influences, telling historical stories, but also telling the moral dramas. The, the science fiction ones were supposed to be like plays for today in space, really. They were supposed to be about morals and ethics as much as anything else and then in Troughton you've got kind of the sort of 50s b-movie feel going running through a lot of it uh not just in season five either throughout the whole thing really mm. and then Barry Letts <laughs> is taking more than the influence that he's taking from things like the Dennis Wheatley but he's also taking influence from what's going on in the worlds of science and politics and bringing it into the series. And <coughs> what you then get with Hinchcliffe and Holmes, like I said, was like a return to the Troutons, where they're not taking the influence of serious things, but taking the influence of fun things again. Mm. But they just, they play with it. They really play with it, don't they? They do. I mean, I've got a list here, which is pointless to go through, but... You know, when it's almost all of them. When you look at every story, you know, Ark in Space, Planet of Evil, Planet of Evil, Pyramids of Mars, Seeds of Doom, Brain of Morbius, Mask of Mandragora, Robots of Death, everything. I've written down all these horror tropes and these films, and they just every single one has got things like Jekyll and Hyde, The Mummy. You know, you go on to Talons of Wang Chan, and it's got almost everything in the list already in one story, and that's one of the most popular stories of all time. And it's just done so beautifully well. Talents of Wang Chang. Well, I think that's what they realised. I think they realised that Doctor Who was a place in the television schedule that you could just get away with telling other people's stories almost, but bringing it into your own canon so that you didn't have to abide by the rules that these stories would have when they were being honest to themselves. So you can have Jekyll and Hyde, Take it on a spaceship, have an evil planet, do a bit of a forbidden planet with it, with the sort of mm. ghost spectre thing that comes out of the Black Lake and all this kind of stuff. Not just going to town on it and not just having fun with it and not just disregarding the rules, but, you know, there's something else. There's a brio about that time and there's a sort of lack of... Um, respect almost for the material that they're stealing from <laughs> they yeah i mean they they are literally stealing aren't they i mean we are all saying i mean are we all saying talents of wind china is like really great or was anybody who doesn't like it absolutely yeah I love yeah. That, yeah but they have literally nicked you know the five faces of fu manchu sherlock holmes there's a giant rat in there from the b movies you know phantom of the opera, phantom of the opera for goodness yeah. sake it's got it all in there Everything it's mm. just been stolen, stolen, stolen. But what makes it so good? I don't know. I mean, it's the knitting together of all these ideas so cleverly and precisely, and then visually it just looks great because the BBC is so good at costume drama. And then you've got Tom Baker at the height of his powers, and then you know Robert Holmes and Philip Hinch Hinchcliffe really throwing everything at the screen because I think it's one of their their last ones. It's just it was the last one. Yeah. So you know why can't we have that every week? <laughs> Because I think, dear Moffat, <laughs> I think the trouble. Yeah, I think the trouble is most people after Doctor Who's established itself by the end of the nineteen sixties, 
which is not to say that it didn't nearly die at the end of the 1960s. But once you come to Doctor Who after the end of the 1960s, you're almost bound to come to it with an agenda. And Barry Letts obviously did. And to a certain degree, I think Graham Williams did. He wanted to make it a bit more literary. And that's not just in the adaptations, because things like Stones of Blood and Underworld, Horns of Nymon and Androids of Tara, Mm. they're not just literary adaptations, but the tropes that he used, I mean, he basically ditched the monsters altogether almost and basically did stories that reminded you of the kind of things that books would focus on rather than the kind of stuff that movies would focus on. So Graham Williams also, and then John Nathan Turner, has an agenda. But I think the thing about Hinchcliffe and Holmes was their only agenda was just to entertain themselves Mm -hmm. and an audience Mm -hmm. into the bargain. Scare the buggers. Yeah, which is really (laughs) weird because with most other programmes most other anything you would think that the bits that take themselves more seriously would be the ones that would not necessarily entertain you the most but impress themselves upon Mm. you the most and in Doctor Who it's completely the other way around Doctor Who breaks all the rules it's made by committee rather than it's not a work of art it's not from an artist do you know what was really lovely about the era is I do remember that um it's almost the same as when you were of a certain age and then if you stayed up late, say your mum and dad fell asleep and you carried on watching television and you caught a Hammer Horror movie on late <laughs> at night and it wasn't scary enough to really freak you out, but it was scary enough, enough to it's sc- yeah. it's scary enough to make you feel a bit, oh, I'm, how brave am I watching this? This is all a bit horrible and all this sort of thing. And it was that sort of level. And here they are showing it at the tea time. Yeah. It's yeah. astonishing, But it's not really. quite the same. It isn't quite no. the same. And you have got that... Um, the one thing that saves it from being, because, you know, like going back to what you said about catching a hammer horror late at night, right? If you catch a movie late at night, you are being introduced to an entire cast of people you don't know. Mm. So, um, you know, I'll talk about the Target books for a minute. The Cybermen. I think the Cybermen was the first black and white story the target book of which i read Mm. and when i read the pertwees and the tom bakers i knew who was going to be alive at the end of it because Mm. i knew that sarah jane was going to be in the next story and of course i knew the doctor was and i knew joe grant was but when i read the cybermen Mm. there were all characters that i was unfamiliar with and you know even though i kind of figured the companions probably would make it to the end i had no idea who they were and if they were in the next story there's something about having an entire cast of characters you don't know that's quite unsettling. Mm. It doesn't give you an in into the story and it doesn't give you an out back out of the other end of it. You can watch Doctor Who with Doctor and the Companion, stroke companions, knowing that that's your safe place. They're going to get you from the start mm. of the story mm. right to the very end of the story and there will be a constant throughout it. And that's a safe place. But in a film, any character might not make it to the end. So who do you pin your safe place on? Who's your mm. identification figure? Because mm. if you look at Psycho, mm. you're not expecting Janet Lee to buy the biscuit after half mm. an hour. Or Alien. 
yeah. another example. You got the captain. He gets. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That, yeah, first time seeing that was somebody a who you've pinned your. I'm calling it a safe place, but you know what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. If the identification character doesn't make it halfway through the film, scream. But you know, in Doctor Who, you can show those stories because for the kids, there is that safe place. There are those regular mm. characters who will take you by the hand through the story and let you know and that it will be it's going to be at okay. The end. Yeah. I mean, Doctor Who never finishes with a, you know, the hand coming out of the earth by the gravestone twist, like in Carrie. You just don't get that in Doctor Who. It's uh, a shame, isn't it? They should do that. <laughs> They're missing a trick there. <laughs> what about the new series, though? I mean, is that is that actually managing to throw some really good horror out at uh, the kids? I, I'm going to ask my own question now. Actually, there's there's uh, the Unquiet Dead. It's an obvious example, isn't it? Because he's playing with well, ghosts they did the and one a year in Russell T. Davis. Yeah, but I think that just that opening sequence of the of the ghost woman walking towards the screen petrified a nation of kids. I know my boy couldn't sleep for about three years after that, and I was looking at it thinking, "This is great. This is really kind mm. of cool and very very scary." And it was this, you know, wide eyed woman who's possessed by a ghost and that's exactly what it felt like of course it had a great zombie she's a zombie mm. well yeah she's a zombie but you know the girls are supposed to be ghosts aren't they that's the well yeah the yeah but you don't find out as a girl till afterwards no, At the time, no she's a walking cadaver she is indeed and it, it's, point, it's really well done i thought and the new series going back to this subject of what tropes are they using and are mm. they the new series has once a year done a story they were quite clever, actually. They What they did was they tied together their historicals with their, let's use, a creature from horror mythology. So you got, in the first series, you got ghosts or zombies with the Dickens story. And then in the second series, you had, what was the one in the second werewolf. series? It was the werewolf in Queen Victoria. Mm. Third series, you had The Witches with Shakespeare, yeah. and so on and so forth. Vampires in Venice is another. So you've got all these, you've got creatures from the horror mythology that they've used in stories that were also set during the time in which that horror mythology would have actually had resonance with the population. Because, yeah. yeah. of course, in most Doctor Who, you'd get a vampire story, State of Decay, mm got a vampire story with the technology yeah and okay you've got the sort of the medieval village is a village that has mm. been kept in that stasis but the technology is available mm. and usually in doctor who planet of evil dr jekyll and mr hyde in a spaceship yeah and so on and so forth but i think it's really clever the way they tied those two things together in mm. the new series it seems really obvious when you say it out loud the most obvious thing in the world to do the ghost story in Shakespearean times, mm. but until you actually do the obvious thing, it's yeah. not always necessarily that obvious to you as a writer. I think one of the creepiest ones in the new series was uh, Midnight. I'm not sure that really borrows, unless I'm missing a trick, any... Well, that's a possession mm. again. Yeah, that's I suppose, yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, it's stunning. That was a, mm. Yeah, the more, the more I think about that, actually, the, the better it gets. Every mm. time I watch it, it gets better and better. Fantastic. The acting is outrageously yeah. good. But it, it was that moment where he loses his his he, he's frozen, isn't he? And he can't move the doctor, and mm-hmm. that's it. He's just to, he just totally cannot move. And you're it's kind hero. of going back to what Jr. was saying just yeah. now about your hero being the person who can yeah. take you through it, and that's a jeopardy. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know he's going to make it because it's Doctor Who. But yeah. man, you're there going, well, how many other people are going to make it? Mm. Is he going to... Mm. What's going to happen? And it's also really didn't know. Midnight kind of comes under the same area as what I was saying about the Awakening before. It's a devil repossession. Yeah. You don't... Uh, in Midnight, you don't get an explanation. No, it takes the Satan pit route in mm. that we don't give you the explanation. But it's kind of a possession by some kind of a devil that is, you know, leading to this chain of events. So that's the kind of area of tropes. Yeah. I mean, part of me was really annoyed about the fact we didn't have any, you know. We run out of steam here. Lee's battery is running. Brain's just stopped. Explanation. Explanation. <laughs> um, oh, that's but, what uh, I love about those sorts of stories. It's but great. no, no, I, come I, up with no, I like the part of me was being a bit Star Trek about it and going, oh, I've got to have an explanation. And then suddenly, uh, you know, right at the end, I thought, no, it's great. Just leave it. It's, yeah, really, it's even yeah. more creepy. We don't know what the heck it was. Mm. Yeah. Let's, the, let's not forget we have Mark Gatiss mm. in there as a. Yeah, he's a massive horror fan. Huge. And he did the no, he didn't do the Lazarus experiment. Was in it, wasn't he? That was another yeah. body horror. Business. No, he did Night Terrors. Yeah. Night Terrors, right. which yeah. is looks and feels like a horror story, but actually, I'm asking, is it? It's not really, is it? Well, it's kind what of almost it? it's a bit weird. sort of body horrorish, isn't it? Because you've got that transformation. Well, you? you've got mm. that transformation, but to mm. be honest, that transformation is pretty much irrelevant to the story that's mm. being told, mm. isn't it? I mean, it feels like it should be a haunted house story, doesn't it? Because you get that lovely doll's house idea. Mm. It's a little bit like get it. poltergeist in it's a bit and Steel as well. Yeah, like, kind but of it's surreal. It's um, it's Mark Gatiss, sort of. Going off on one and not quite getting what he's <laughs> gone off on. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe in the writing, he could visualise it and go, oh, I can see this. Because he, he did things like the Crooked House, yeah, that's really which good. were absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you know, very good. Throw back to the 70s Hammer Horror stuff. And that's what I was expecting for his episode. And I was really disappointed. And I'm thinking that it may not have been his fault necessarily. It might have been the fault of the acting, the direction, the, the way w- which it was edited and the atmosphere and even the music as well, actually. I don't think it quite got it to yeah, the point. Yeah, but no, I'm saying it is Mark Gatiss's fault because yeah. what is that story about? It's Dead like dolls. what I'm I saying is... <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's bad, again. And we're not here to talk about whether the stories are good or bad. No. But we're here to talk about what influences they're borrowing and whether they use them well. Mm. And in that story, it's almost like Mark Gatiss has written lots of things that look like horror tropes yeah but actually aren't and so i think where night terrors doesn't work is in it's got all the flim flam on the top is one thing and then all the uh get to the sponge underneath <laughs> is something else but it's it's a you're talking about a horror trifle aren't you exactly yeah it's a trifle where the uh fruit is not the kind of fruit that you'd normally expect in a drive. It's almost like kiwi. It's almost like the poltergeist <laughs> thing, but it's like the people are uh, rather than people disappearing, you not knowing where they are, and you see all the effects on the outside. You're going with the people to where they're taken, and it almost takes the it takes the mystery. It takes out. the you mystery they, out of it. Yeah, it, it, they should have started in the house. To... Should have just started. They should have yeah. landed in the house, be miniaturized, just like you know, 
uh, oh yeah yeah that's the idea and just start the mystery that end and then come out the other side and go oh there's a small boy that's involved because it's like Mm. uh halfway through the story you have one mystery replaced with another Mm, and although the mysteries tie together at the end there's such a huge narrative jump between the two mysteries that your brain doesn't really follow with it Mm. it's and, I, and strangely, got, you've got a connection between that and the demons, haven't you? The the res- resolution at the end is is along the same lines as the father's yeah. love and Joe's love, and it it almost feels like that was there at the start, and then they love saves the day. I quite oh. like that in Night yeah. Terrors. I think it mm. works in that story, yeah, because the story does focus on the kid, and it's almost. I like the message it mm. gives. No, I yeah, I do as well. Yeah, I was in two minds about the magpie idea, but I think it's, uh, it does kind of work. It's midwitch cuckoos, another strange horror. Talking of magpie. Uh, what was the other story? Idiot's Lantern. Idiot's Lantern. It is. <laughs> does that count as horror? No, I'm Not just really. trying to think. I'm Not just sure. Well, it, again, it's it a, well, TV screen, obviously, Poltergeist, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. but that's how I, can, I say. Mm. All the Mark faceless Gates people. Is. Stuck in a room with faceless people. Claustrophobia, yeah, maybe. Mm. Mm. But no, what I'm that. saying is, again, it's Mark Gatiss using the trappings of horror tropes, and, but only the sort of surface trappings, yeah. Yeah. and nothing else. None mm. of the detail. Yeah, yeah, it's like the substance of it is something else entirely. It's mm. a beige horror story. I think this is why a lot of Mark Gatiss' <laughs> stories... his favourite new word now, it beige. <laughs> it's like Scooby-Doo using Frankenstein, isn't it? It's, that's that same. <laughs> but it is, though, Mark isn't it? Gatiss it's you using it purely as a... Up for that. <laughs> All right, well... Okay, here's a challenge to Mark. Come on, let's have some guts, because you're a horror fan. You're You're a brilliant writer. I think he was a little bit because um, he wrote that the Unquiet Dead has been something a bit more grisly and more detailed and deep. And he said, "Oh, it became a bit of a runaround." I think he was a bit disappointed. But I think that's his, his strongest, that's his best one. Yeah. horror um, mm. story. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything in Matt Smith's tenure that makes you go? No, I mean, apart from because Night Terrors I think, doesn't. You know, Night Terrors is a, the example, most yeah. obvious one. I think um, Stephen Moffat's left that behind. Yeah. I think Stephen Moffat's taken Doctor Who far You say more. that, but Angels in Manhattan, wasn't that but kind it's of got, like a... It's got creepy or... bits in it, but it's not Haunted House. It's no. a, you know, the, the creepy stuff I don't know, there. it gets into haunted a little bit of um, oh, Stephen King Shining. The Shining, yeah, kind yeah. of ish. In well, a he, sort of yeah, creepy yeah. hotel location. Well, yeah, we had two angels, hotels, didn't we? Yeah, but there's dark hotel thing it looks a bit like angel heart yes yeah great film but um no to my mind it's just uh, angels in manhattan is just a sort of pulpy detective story with a few doctor who trappings in it so it's no more uh using horror tropes hmm. than any other Doctor Who story that is a sci-fi story okay, with a few scary bits. Maybe the background and the setting and the uh, you know shots of things like gargoyles. I mean, that just echoes the shots of gargoyles thrown in to give you the atmosphere that is spooky. In The Demons, it's the same thing. The, the opening sequences, you've got a cat looking around going... And then a, that was terrible, wasn't it? I couldn't do it. Yeah, but the difference That is... was a really bad impression <laughs> of a cat. Sorry about that. Anyway, and a rook as well and a gargoyle. You know, these are all 
very obvious kind yeah, of little clips to build up the being atmosphere. The demons is a Dennis Wheatley, yeah. Whereas Angels in Manhattan is a gumshoe. It is a gumshoe. So you know we're talking about <laughs> stories that are actually influenced by horror tropes. I know, not just, just ones trying... that have gargoyles. In no, them. no, but that he was trying to. I, I think Stephen Moffat was trying to give you a backdrop of spookiness by doing these very obvious edits. You know, of yes, a backdrop of spookiness that's been running throughout Doctor Who right since the start, which was the no thing gothic. Been... It's it's, goth- it's purely gothic. Those, you know, the, the gargoyles are are gothic. Yes, aren't they? Like but the demons. No, the story's not. I know the story isn't. I'm just telling you there are a few visual tropes in there. And at the start of this episode, I said we'd be talking about the stories that were influenced by oh, horror. We're not allowed than to talk about any technical stuff. Creepy bits. Right. Because the music there are creepy was good. bits in every Doctor yeah. Who story. That was. What about music? Aren't we allowed to talk about music as well then? In Angels in Manhattan. In all of it. Doctor Who as a whole. Come on, Simon. Back me up. Music man. What? Is there any music in Doctor Who that scared your pants off? No. In that horrific way? No. No? Oh. Nothing I can think of. Can you? Yeah. You know, remember the Pyramids of Mars? When yeah. he sits down and he plays the organ. Oh, yeah, That yeah. scared me. Mm. And that's, just, that's that's another obvious kind of hammer horror. Kind of me, 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 Phantom of the Opera type thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. Why, when I talk, you just stop and look at me and go, what's he on about? <laughs> oh, I get that a lot as well. Don't worry. <laughs> well, because you just... There will be gone. people out there going, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Please write in. <laughs> Back me up here. Back me up. <laughs> Because we said the whole the whole experience of watching Doctor Who and getting that kind of horror feeling from it is a mixture of the writing and the you know the like you say the horror tropes and the, the stealing of bits of film and stuff like that. But it's also everything else involved, like the music and the way it's edited and filmed and you know directed and stuff like that. So it's all part of the you know. Yeah, he's talking to the cat now. Look, I know he's lost interest totally because <laughs> we're not talking about writing. <laughs> Are you gonna if you wrote a horror story? <laughs> JR, <laughs> how would you how would you make it really creepy? How would you make it really, you know? How what do you say, somebody? No, let's get to the. Guess. I'm just so interested. What? I'm just interested as a writer. You know, if you were to write to Doctor Who now, what what story. would you do in order to make it scary? How would you write that story? What what would be the main thing in it that makes you go? Whoa. Well, I think you'd put something in there that you wouldn't expect to see in a place you wouldn't expect to see it. That's always the scariest thing for me. Right. Mm. Should we talk a bit more about the Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories? Because we said we were building up towards that and we barely touched them. Yeah, we skimmed off the surface, just like 1938. 42, we haven't mentioned that, but yes. That's a possession story. Yeah, it is. Very claustrophobic too. And and then and you've got something you wouldn't expect to see, which is Michelle Collins in a quality drama. <laughs> I think we've really run out of steam now, haven't we? Brennan Morbius, I think that's you know when you're going back to that Hinchcliffe era, if you're looking at horror tropes and if you're looking at something that really defines that, it's, for me it's one of the really standout ones. Do you know what Hinchcliffe and Holmes did? And Brain and Morbius kind of feeds into this a bit. The way Barry Letts was explaining everything, Hinchcliffe and Holmes just didn't bother. If they wanted a, I mean, they give a throwaway explanation, but they didn't try and explain it in a thorough and mundane way. 
Well, didn't Terence Dix write it as a much more explained story, and then they uh, decided to sort of streamline exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. In Talons of Wang Chiang, you've got the Peking homunculus, which is, uh, uh, you know, a, a dummy with Devil the brain doll. of a pig. Horrible. In it. The brain of a pig Horrible in it, doll, yeah. but then comes to life and starts walking around and having a mm. mind of its own. There's no scientific explanation for that. You can't put a mouse's brain in your Barbie doll and then have the Barbie doll walking <laughs> around the room. Now that is genius. Brilliant. See, but do you know what Barbie I'm saying? Make it funny. It's way around a maze. Be brilliant. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they explain the fact that this dummy is now animated by saying it's got a pig's brain in it. That's not an explanation. That's just a bit of frippery. Yeah. Brain of Morbius, there's a brain in a jar. Mm. You know, there's no scientific explanation for a brain in a jar. It looks vaguely sciencey, mm. but like Mark just said, they took all the Terence Diggs, he's got a robot working for him out, and gave him a man whose mm. arm's been replaced by a claw instead because it was more fun. Mm. Hitchcliffe and Holmes stopped explaining things. They did go to town on that one, didn't they? Because that was the fiend without a face, the brain that couldn't die, all those horror films. She. Uh, which one? Brain of Morbius, you're talking. Yeah. She. She who? Well, H. Ryder Haggard, the Hammer adaptation of She. Oh, the yeah, girls yeah, with she. the flames. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right, yeah, exactly. And of course Frankenstein. And the castles, loads of castles went into their era as well. I like in um, Christopher Bidmead as well, actually, but in, in his fairy tale, tale way, yes. Yeah. Oh, he did, he did, he did. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I read that somewhere else, actually, a couple of weeks ago, after I said it. So I'm just wondering who wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> you but you know what You I'm can't saying. copyright an idea, sorry. I think you can. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the idea? But you know, that was Hinchcliffe and Holmes, they... They kicked out all the mundane bits, you know, tying it in with things that meant something, tying it in with, uh, you know, stuff that was relevant to the day and age, tying it in with explanations. You know, in Hinchcliffe and Holmes, everything is ostensibly also science fiction, but actually it's not. Most of it's pretty much supernatural. I mean, the guy with the potion the rocks from the planet's surface in Planet of Evil, and this, these rocks somehow make him turn into Mr. Hyde. That's not an explanation. And the black pool that goes... Black pool that goes between <laughs> one universe and another. That's not an explanation either. That's just something that's really frightening and supernatural and, you know, spooky that they've just thought, this will scare the bejesus out of the kids, let's shove it in the story. And their stories actually make more sense that way. Because you look at the demons, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense that this guy's from a spaceship and he's, you know, he wakes up every X thousand years and then, the, you know, for a couple of weeks and then spends X thousand years asleep. I mean, your average horror film, there are exceptions, obviously, but you tend to, they don't tend to dwell on detail in those, do they? Just No, absolutely not. You know, the, the action happens on the screen. You'll have yeah. some random monster turn up it's not really explained but it's just yeah. a lot of the time it's the atmosphere isn't it the more yeah. surreal and weird it is mm. in a horror film sometimes that's even you know more creepy it doesn't make any sense yeah mm. but generally speaking they actually have an internal logic that makes more sense than if you try and explain them because mm. y- you know i always find with these things 
if you try and explain something, and demons is the perfect example, you tie yourself in knots trying then to explain away the details. Mm. If you say this guy is a guy who's in a spaceship who's come from outer space to watch over our development, then you've got to explain why he's not there the whole time. So then you say, like I was going back to what I was saying just now, he's asleep for thousands of years over time. Well, I mean, seriously? We, By this haven't... point, you get into the area of, are you really expecting me to suspend my disbelief for that? We haven't mentioned one Colin Baker story, have we? <clears throat> well, would you like I to try? I don't think there oh, are no. any horror. I think it's horrific, which is Sayward's stamp in it. But mm. I don't know if it's mm. horror or gothic horror or that kind of thing. No. Can you think of anything? No, I can't. I can't think of one. Uh, no. I mean, there's... Yeah, like you I'd say... Like the, the 80s tried to knock that sort of stuff on the head. Mm, mm, and it was mm. only right at the very, very end. You've got the occasional story, like I said, like The Awakening, but very few and far between. The conversions in Attack of the Cybermen. You've got Vengeance on Varos, which has got sort of bits of body horror in it, but it's not... doesn't really... No, stand up. It's really Apart from Androzani and things like that, you know, which are obvious. You've said this already, Phantom of the Opera type things, you know. Crazy man in the lair with half a face missing. The end of Mind Warp. Is that classed as horror? No, just horrifying, I guess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> horrifying. Well, it goes back to what Ooh. I was saying before. There's lots of bits in Doctor Who. Bits yeah. that are horror or scary or spooky, yeah. but actual stories that mm. are based upon, inspired by, and follow the rules of the tropes of horror. There are actually not that many at all. No, it's just that. And, you know, you've got probably more than 50% of them concentrated into that one two-and-a-half-year period. Yeah, looking at my list, that's exactly what I've got. So, uh, I guess that's it. Anybody like to make a kind of summing up? You know, we never really do a summing up on this program, do we? Summing up? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I just did it, actually, didn't you, I? You just did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Mark, sum it all what up. You said. I like horror me. <laughs> there you go. Would we? Here's the question then. Would we like to see Doctor Who return to that? And I, do we think Doctor Who could return to that? It won't return to that because you're talking about a whole season and all two seasons having very similar atmospheres or stealing similar themes and, like you say, tropes and horror films. I don't think it's going to happen because and, they like to do something different every week. And we're in the age of CGI where you basically you can show everything. And and there's a far more shown than should be in some respects, isn't there? It's not so much psychological. You know, there's there's an argument for the fact that a lot of the stuff they didn't show because they couldn't do it. But in that essence, it became more powerful. But now they can. And I think, you know, it, it wouldn't work in the same way. I don't also, think. you have to look at where you take your influences from mm. because television generally tends to reflect what's happened in the cinema a certain amount of time before and not what's current. And the Hinchcliffe and Holmes in the 70s were reflecting the hammer horrors of the 50s and 60s, right? Which kind of died out in the early 70s. I mean, you did have some good ones in the late 60s and early 70s, but that was right the tail end of it. And then in the 1980s, even though they weren't using horror tropes, what they were doing were reflecting the video nasties. And the oh, yeah. Vengeance on Varus obviously is primer example of that. But there's a lot of video nasty stuff 
going on in Doctor Who. It's a lot of use of green goo yeah. for a start. And, uh, you know, a lot of Eric Sayward's stuff is based on the kind of stuff that they were just about managing to get away with in Video Nasties. Yeah. So you have kind of got that mm. in the 1980s, but it's an entirely different thing. It's not proper horror. It's horrific mm. as opposed to horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose you have to track it, don't you? If you look at what's on at the moment in the cinemas, horror-wise. Well, that's what I'm saying. At the goes, moment, yeah. you've kind of had a cycle of torture horror. Yeah, but there's it's also very... a massive paranormal thing happening because of the most haunted TV show and all that stuff. And then you get the paranormal activity, the Blair Witch Project. All of that still hangs nicely in the, in the kind of genre. And that kind of manifests as things like Blink. Yeah, in some so. respects. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to yeah, say, so. they do actually use a bit of that, don't they? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a, because that sort of paranormal thing is the kind of thing you can do as science fiction, mm. you know, because it's it's kind of got that sort of slightly more... Like you say, with Thomas the Direction. Terror of the Autons did it by yeah, know, the possession it's, it's of... Kinda, it's kind of almost more explainable without mm. having to go too deeply into it. Mm. So, but one thing they won't do is the sort of Torture, or a human caterpillar. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get that. <laughs> Doctor Who does torture porn. I don't think there's yeah, going to happen. No, <clears throat> no, I don't think. Well, Doctor they tried Saw. It. Actually, they're trying it in Vengeance on Varos, didn't they? <laughs> For its sins. Right then, are we going to? I think we're done. Mm. Sin is fascinating, really. But uh... mm. right, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Is that how the new one goes? Is this a new one?